Um, I have been thinking so much in the past few weeks about our children's ministry. And um, I have concluded that uh, our children are our greatest asset here at Avalon Church. And time is fleeting. Time passes so fast. In 10 years, most of the children who are in the back back here will be in high school or be in college. In 15 years, they'll be the leaders in our community and the leaders in our churches. And while we cannot take the place of moms and dads, we have a huge responsibility to them. I think during our nine o'clock service, we normally have about 60 children that are back here in the back. I want you to know that we do not babysit them. We teach them and we love them and we care for them. And that takes place by a group of great, great volunteers who um, sacrifice in order to be back there ministering to our children. During this time of transition and leadership in our children's ministry, um, I, I really want our church and I personally want to thank Pastor Jim and Greg Ballard for stepping up and I think heroically saying we're going to make sure that our children are taken care of. And so I thank them publicly. I ask you to thank them uh, when you see them. But I want to pray. Let's just pray together. One heart, one spirit uh, for our children who are in the back and uh, asking. It's all about Jesus, right? It's all about Jesus. And so we're just asking Jesus to minister to them in a way that only he can. So I invite you to pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, you yourself made it so very, very clear what your heart was for children, saying something like, if you hinder children from coming to me, it would be better for you to put a weight around your neck and be tossed into the sea. Well, that's pretty clear, Lord. And we want to be a people who bring children to you. And it takes work and it takes planning and it's not easy and it just doesn't happen. And so I want to thank you this morning for the many adult volunteers who say I'll sacrifice, I'll teach, I'll love, I'll care, I'll hug, I'll lead. Thank you for them, empower them, use them in a mighty, mighty way this morning even now and then Lord we thank you for the children we are so blessed as a church family to have so many children here and Lord we sense a huge responsibility to them we ask you that you would protect them we ask that you would provide for them we ask you, Lord, that you would draw them close to yourself in such a way that they could even sense your presence in their lives. Open up their hearts to receive truth about you, your love for them, your faithfulness, your promises. May they know them. May they walk in them. And so, Lord, we unite our hearts together and we pray a simple prayer. Bless our children this morning in a very, very special way. 
And Lord, we ask you that for your glory. And we pray this prayer in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for praying that prayer with me. Our text this morning is from Genesis, the second chapter, beginning in the 18th verse. I would like to begin by simply reading these verses to you. They should be on the screen as well. If you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 2, beginning in the 18th verse. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Maybe you have heard the phrase, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. That is an idea that we adopt here in our relationships with one another. When we go over to a friend's house, we kind of do what they do. If they've invited us for dinner, we kind of go through that experience the way they normally would go through that experience. I remember a time when I was just a little boy probably elementary age kid. And after school, I was playing with one of my friends. And after we had played for some time, his mom invited me to join his family for dinner. And so after getting permission, we went in and we washed our hands and we sat down at the dinner table, me visiting this family, this family of one of my school friends. After we said the blessing and having taken account of the table, this was the kind of family that uh, had empty plates in front of every place and they had serving dishes and they would pass the serving dishes and you would fix your plate that way. Well, after the blessing, I did what I would normally do. I reached for the salad dressing. There was a bowl of salad right in front of my empty plate and I poured the salad dressing all over the salad and put it down. And my friend's mom looked at me and very kindly said, Dale, are you gonna have all of that salad for yourself? And I didn't understand. I was taken back a little bit and as I looked, I realized there was only one bowl of salad 
that was meant to be passed around to everyone. Because when you're at their place, you do it the way they do it. At my house, we all had a salad bowl. We all had a bowl of salad, you know? But that's not the way they did it there. When you go to someone else's place, when you go into their world, you generally do it the way they do it. We treat this same kind of thinking in our relationship with God. God has this world, and we have this world. And what we have a tendency to do is invite God into our world and have God adapt to our way of doing things. We do this with our finances. God, this is the way I'm going to do my finances. You come and adapt to that. You come and be a part of that. You come and you bless that. We do that with, with our lifestyles. We do that sometimes with church. God, this is the way we're going to do church. Now, you're invited to come and be a part of that. You're invited to come and do it the way that we do it. And we hope that you'll be here and we hope that you'll bless and we pray that. And what I, I want us to see this morning as we focus on the subject of marriage is we do the exact same thing with marriage. That, that we have a way of doing marriage and we invite God to come. We invite God to adapt to our way of doing marriage. We ask his blessings. We ask him to be a part of our marriage. But we've got to take this idea of inviting God into our world and eliminate that idea. We as followers of Jesus Christ that can't be an option for us. The reality is, is God invites us into his world. And when he invites us into his world, then we are to do things his way. We are to adapt. We are to learn. We are to follow. We are to do it the way he has instructed us to do it. Finances, he's given us a blueprint for finances. Relationships, he's given us a blueprint for relationships. Marriage, he's given us a blueprint for marriage. This world has no idea what God's blueprint for marriage is. And I'm afraid that so few in the church have little idea about God's design for marriage. And this is an important subject for us. This is an important subject for the teenagers who are in the room this morning. If you're going to get married one day, you need to understand God's design, the way he designed it. For our 18 to 25 group, this is an important message for you today. For those who are married, this is an important message. The foundation of your marriage is God's design for it. So this isn't a message on seven steps to a better, mess, to a better marriage. This is a message on how God visions marriage to be, what he designed it to be. I don't believe there's ever been a generation 
whose view of marriage is high enough. Because we don't adopt God's view of it. And the difference between the biblical view of marriage and the human vision or view of marriage, it's always been this wide gap. The difference has always been huge. And many cultures, just like our own, have such a low, casual, take-it-or-leave-it attitude toward marriage. It's so, it's so strong that it makes the biblical view, the biblical vision for marriage seem crazy to most people. I think you probably have experienced that. God's way of doing marriage, people think it's just nuts. It's crazy. That was the case in Jesus' day, by the way. I believe it's in Matthew, the 19th chapter, and Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he gives this, this incredible, this magnificent view of marriage that God has designed, that God has willed for his people. And the disciples, after hearing his description of this marriage, they asked the Lord this question. If such is the case of a man with his wife, isn't it better not to marry at all? Matthew chapter 19 and verse 10. And I think Jesus' answer to the disciples on that day is what he would say to us today. He looked at them and he said, look, this is a hard teaching. Not everybody can receive this saying, he said. Only those to whom it is given. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Matthew 19, 11 and 12. I'm here to tell you this morning, church family, followers of Jesus, the world cannot know what marriage is without learning it from God. The design for marriage. The natural man does not have the capacity to understand, to receive, to feel the wonder, if you'll allow, the wonder of what God has designed marriage to be. And I, I pray that this marriage opens up our eyes in the church and helps to set us free from a God-neglecting, unbiblical view of marriage. So, what is a biblical vision of marriage? John Piper writes these words, a biblical vision of marriage. A vision of marriage higher and deeper and stronger and more glorious than anything this culture ever imagined. He goes on and says this, the greatness and glory of marriage is beyond our ability to think or feel without divine revelation and without the illuminating and awakening work of the Holy Spirit. I agree with him. We can't understand God's vision without the Holy Spirit illuminating that in our hearts and in our minds. The most foundational thing to see from the Bible about marriage is that marriage is God's doing. The most ultimate thing to see from the Bible about marriage is that marriage is designed for God's glory. 
So keep in mind, those are the two points. Let's just hit those two points. It won't take us long. This is God's vision. The foundational thing is he designed it. It's his plan. It's God who did it. The ultimate thing is it's designed to bring him glory. And so I pray that the Bible will impress these things upon us. First, marriage is God's doing. Four things, real quick. Marriage was God's design. Back in, in, in the first chapter of Genesis, we read from the second chapter, back in the first chapter of Genesis, God, it says in verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So there's, there's God's, uh, in chapter one, a beginning of an understanding of his design. And then back in chapter 2 in verse 18, which we've already read this morning, he makes it more clear. God says, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make, I will, God says, I will make him a helper fit for him. Don't miss that central and all-important statement. God himself will make a being perfectly suited for the man he will make for the man a wife he makes this statement and then he parades all of the animals in front of the man so that he can see that there is no creature that qualifies as a suitable helper or a mate for the man this creature must be uniquely made from man so that she will be, in essence, a human or as a human created as man was in God's image. The important point here is marriage is God's design. He's the one who spoke that to us, just as Genesis 1.27 says. A second thing, God gave away the first bride. Genesis 2 and verse 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. God didn't hide her and make Adam seek her out. He made her and brought her to the man. Here's a third thing. God spoke the design of marriage into existence. Now, this is important because this is, a, this is one of the arguments that the world has about God's design for marriage. He spoke it into existence. In verse 24, God says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, who's talking in that verse? It's Moses writing those words. But if we look over in Matthew chapter 19, listen carefully to what it says. Jesus answered a question, and here was his answer. Have you not read that he, God, who created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, note, he, God, made them, and he, God, said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is important. 
It's important to understand that God spoke his vision and his design for marriage into existence. So it was God who spoke the design of marriage into existence. And then God performs, God performs, God performs the one flesh union. Over in the Gospel of Mark in the 10th chapter, verses 8 and 9, Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24. And then he adds a comment to that. He quotes and he says, the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. And then then he adds this to it. Jesus adds this to it. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so listen, because this is, this is a part I think that the world just cannot get and cannot understand. The question becomes, can we? When a couple stands here and repeats their vows to one another, and then later they, they, they consummate their vows with sexual union, it's not, a, it's not a man or a woman or a father or a mother or a pastor or a priest. or it's, it's none of those that joins a husband and wife into a one flesh union. God does that. God takes two and makes them one. God does that. And I think that part of our our. our our casualness, if that's the right word, about marriage comes from not fully understanding and believing and embracing this truth that God in a supernatural, miraculous act takes two people and makes them one. Christians often act like they don't understand it, which I think is one of the reasons marriage in the church is not seen as the wonder that it is. Marriage is God's doing because it is a one flesh union that God himself performs. Okay, so you got it? It's God's design. God does it. Most foundationally, marriage is the doing of God. Now, most ultimately, marriage is the display of God. Marriage is for God's glory. That is the purpose of marriage. It is designed by God to display his glory in a way, I believe, that no other event or institution can do it. It displays his glory in a very unique and special way. It shines a light on him. This little sentence here is just a little extra for you. But it's, it's something to ponder and consider. If your marriage is going to make God look glorious, then you must find more satisfaction in God than you do in your marriage. God's design is that it brings him glory. Your marriage brings him glory. If your marriage is going to bring God glory, you must find more satisfaction in God than you do in your marriage. If your marriage is not bringing God glory, 
then you're missing the design and the intent and the purpose and the vision of marriage and how God designed it. Which means you're living beneath your privilege as a follower of Jesus Christ. Marriage is for God's glory. The way to see this most clearly is to connect Genesis 2.24 where God speaks marriage into existence with its use in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 31 and 32. In, in, in verse 24, here's what God says. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now what kind of relationship is this? How, what does it mean, hold fast? In the King James, it says cleave. When I think of the word cleave, I think of the word super glue. Nothing can tear it apart. Nothing can tear it. You hold fast to your wife. You cleave to your wife. You're super glued to your wife. So what is it that holds a husband and a wife together? What is it? What is it in our culture that holds a husband and wife together? Is it, is it physical attraction is it the kids? The kids keep the husband and wife together? Is it convenience, cultural convenience? Is it two incomes are better than one and so? Is it sex? Is it just the fact that, you know, we treat each other good? Is that what it is? What, is it love? Is that what keeps? And so whatever that answer is for you, whatever you, you perceive that answer would be for you in marriage, the question becomes, what if that thing changes? What if that thing goes away? What if he doesn't treat you good anymore? What if he doesn't stay faithful anymore? What if she's not beautiful anymore? What if? What if the sex isn't what, what it used to be? What, the kids are going to be grown up and gone. What if those things change or go away? Then what holds them together? That's the mystery of marriage revealed in Ephesians 5. That's exactly what Jesus was addressing in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. The mystery of marriage fully revealed... Paul quotes Genesis 2.24. We just read that. He quotes it in verse 31 of Ephesians chapter 5. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he gives this all-important interpretation in verse 32. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He quotes 2.24. Man leaves his father and mother, cleaves unto his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And then he says, now here's what that means. It's referring to Jesus Christ in the church. That's what it's referring to. That's what holds it together. In other words, marriage, God's design for marriage is patterned after Christ's covenant commitment to the church. It's supposed to reflect that. It's supposed to look like that. It's supposed to be that. Christ thought of himself as the bridegroom coming for the bride. That is all over the New Testament. I could give you four or five verses real quick this morning. 
Christ, that was his mindset. I'm the bridegroom and I'm coming for the bride. The apostle Paul understood this. He knew that his ministry was to gather the bride of Christ, the true people of God who would trust in Christ and betroth them and marry them, if you will, to the Son of God, to Jesus. He says this in 2 Corinthians. Here's what he said to the church at Corinth. I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. All over the New Testament. Christ, Jesus, our groom, the bridegroom, purchased us. He paid the the dowry, as they would say in those days, with his own blood for you and for me, for his redeemed bride. He paid the price for his redeemed bride. And he calls this relationship the new covenant. He says in in Luke 22, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And this is what Paul is referring to when he says that marriage is a great mystery. I'm saying, Paul said, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That Christ obtained, purchased the church by his blood And he formed a new covenant with her. And that new covenant is an unbreakable marriage. Now keep in mind, back in Genesis, when God is speaking the design of marriage into existence, that this is what he is thinking about the purpose of marriage being. The most ultimate thing we can say about marriage is that it exists for God's glory. That is... It exists to display God. And when we understand this connection between Genesis and Ephesians, we we can begin to see how. That marriage is patterned after Christ's covenant relationship to the church. And listen carefully. Therefore, the highest meaning, the most ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Jesus with the church on display for the world to see. That's the purpose of marriage. If you are married this morning, that's why you are married. To put on display the covenant relationship that Jesus has with his bride, the church. His bride that he purchased with his blood. He sealed this covenant, this unbreakable covenant with his blood. That's what marriage is about. Now see, that doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you love one another. (laughs) It doesn't have anything to do with the kids. It doesn't have anything to do with physical attraction. It doesn't have anything to do with sex. It doesn't have anything to do with two incomes. It doesn't have anything to do with that. What holds us together is that it is a display of Christ's covenant with the church. And so I say to our teenagers and I say to our 18 to 25s and I say to our single adults here, you think about getting married, you need to know what you're getting into. 
You need to know God's design. You need to, that's the foundation. That's where you need to start. Staying married, it's not about staying in love. It's about keeping a covenant. You can call it till death do us part, or you can say as long as we both shall live, either one's fine with me. Both are sacred covenant promises. And it's the same promise that Jesus made with his bride when he died for her. Jesus will never leave his wife. I will be the first one to tell you that it hasn't been a smooth relationship with me and Jesus all these years. There's been some tough times. There's been times I've been unfaithful to him. I cheated on him. There's been some times I've denied even knowing him. There have been times I haven't treated him as my Lord, my master. I haven't followed him. There's been times in my life that there was no indication of any relationship with Jesus, and yet he never, ever left me. And he never will. Jesus will never leave his bride, ever. Painful times, times of distance, but Jesus keeps his covenant forever. Marriage is a display of that. Marriage is a display of that. It's the most ultimate thing that we can say about marriage. Listen. If your marriage is going to bring glory to God, then you have to find greater pleasure in God than you do in your marriage. That's why I'd rather preach on God than marriage. That's why I, I, w w w w when, we, when we speak on Sunday morning about God's providence and God's sovereignty and God's, and God's power and God's faithfulness and God's forgiveness and God's mercy and God's grace and God's promises and God's love and we speak on those things and we want to embrace those things, that's preaching on marriage. That's preaching on finances. That's preaching on relationships. That's preaching on career. The point this morning is we, we must, th this isn't just a February Valentine's kind of message. It is important that we as the church of Jesus Christ understand what God had in mind when he designed marriage, what his vision of marriage was, and we build our marriage on that. The foundational thing is he did it. The ultimate thing is it's for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, I'll say what the disciples said. Man, it might be better not to get married. And you go, yep, it's a hard teaching. But this is my best for you. This is my best for you. This is my blueprint. This is the design. Whatsoever you eat, whatsoever you drink, whatsoever you do, do to the glory of God. And marriage is not excluded from that. Our marriages are to bring you glory because they are to be a picture of the covenant you have made with each of us. 
and you would never leave us. So what holds our marriage together is the display of that covenant. Thank you for your truth. It challenges us. My prayer is that it changes us. Beginning at this moment. Why, Lord? For your glory. For your glory.